Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Each month, over 80,000 people download podcasts produced from the fevered mind of Royfield Brown. They cover a gamut of topics like maps, politics, American presidents, history, the archers, Formula One, Jamaican culture, and Englishness. Go to wherever you get your podcast and type in Royfield Brown to discover a new favorite podcast today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Before we start this week's show, just need to thank uh, the three people who have written us reviews in the last seven days on Apple Podcasts around the world. Uh, firstly, they are C. A. Hegarty from the United States, Iris2309 from Israel, and Alice212Times0, who lives in Germany. Now, the important thing is that if you post a review for the podcast on Apple iTunes, it helps to expand the reach of the show. So if you want to be a friend of Mid-Atlantic and you enjoy what we do here, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts and you'll get a shout out on the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome. I'm Royful Brown, who sat in his beloved East Bay. I am in Oakland, California. This has been a week where we've seen seismic changes in the UK, at least if we are to believe the latest census report. The face of Britain has most definitely changed. Also, has American politics changed? Have we seen potentially the high point of Trumpism? We have the Georgia Senate runoff race to discuss. With me, I have an illustrious panel 
some of my best pals on the app Clubhouse. If you are listening to this podcast, and we've had some record download figures recently, if you listen to this podcast and you'd like to be part of the recording of the podcast, quite simply, all you have to do Go to either Apple iTunes or the Google Play Store and download the Clubhouse app. And what it means is that you can be in the audience for one of these live recordings of this podcast. But with me today, I have Aram Fisher. We have Isaiah D, who's new to the Mid-Atlantic experience. Mike Donahue, good friend of the show. Mike Holden. So we have two mics. We have to be careful how we address them. Marshall Ranking, our nice, cuddly conservative. And, and we have other people on stage as well, Parker Payne and Odinware. But first off, we're going to deal with the UK census, which has pointed out the new face of the United Kingdom. The 2021 census gives a snapshot into how Britain has changed in the last decade. And perhaps the most significant findings are about religion and race. Now, this map reflects how densely populated Christian communities are in England and Wales. And for the first time ever, less than half the population of England and Wales describe themselves as Christian, down from 58.3% in 2011 to 46.2% last year, a drop of five and a half million people. And by contrast, this map reflects the number of people declaring no religion at all. That's on the increase. It's now 37.2% nationally. That's just over 22 million people. And England and Wales are also more ethnically diverse than ever before. In 2011, 86% of the population described themselves as white. That's fallen to 81.7%. And in some English cities, including Birmingham and Leicester, more than half of the population now comes from ethnic minority groups. And London is as much a global city as an English one. Just over a third of Londoners identify as white and British. That is down from nearly 45% a decade ago. Polish people remain the most common non-UK identity, but those from Romania are now second, those with Indian heritage are in third place, and the Irish community in England and Wales has dropped from second greatest to fourth in the last 10 years. Mike Holden, I'm going to start with you. These, these census report figures, what has been the media chatter about them? in the UK. Good evening, right? Good to speak to you again. One of the major problems with the census was the way it was presented opened the door to a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment by the usual suspects over here in the UK. The Nigel Farage, as, as your clip pointed out, Christianity seems to be on the decline and other religions seem to be on the rise a little bit. But the headline, the major statistical difference, I think, is that a lot fewer people now consider themselves to be religious at all. There are many more um, secular uh, citizens in, in the country. The true number of Christians is probably even lower than the, than the census shows because they are generally perceived as a Christian country. So if you're asked, what is your religion? You'd say, well, I'm a Christian, even though I'm not religious. But of course, as I say, the, the right wing, the Nigel Farage of this world, stepped in and said it's proof that we've been invaded by foreign entities and foreign religions. and do they call it great replacement theory uh, over in uh, America? Right wing dog whistles. Even if we, we look at it, and most definitely the amount of Britons who identify as being from an ethnic minority has gone up from some 13% to now just under 20%, it's in some change. But that doesn't account for 
the sizable drop, bearing in mind that a large proportion of those ethnic minorities would actually be Christian. You know, my mother's black. She's most definitely a Christian. She goes to church every Sunday. Do we have any reasons to the decline of Christianity within Britain before we come on to immigrants per se? And, and what does this mean for things like prayers in school? Surely that's an anachronism now. Well, you would think so, but it still happens. It's still a constant thing. Prayers in school are still there. Again, trying not to bring it around to Mr. Farage, but he made a very pointed statement about not the declining Christians, but the declining white Christians. So sadly, right, Phil, your family, Christian though they may be, don't count as far as we We don't uh, count. We're not the right type of Christian. Fair enough. Not the right type of Christians, exactly. Mike Donoghue, I know that you've travelled to, to the UK. Do these census report figures, do they surprise you at all? I, I presume when you flew to the UK, you went to London, which has got to be one of the most ethnically diverse cities on, on planet Earth. Yeah, well, maybe not as ethnically diverse as, say, Birmingham, but certainly a great city. No, no surprise. I think I think it reflects what you're seeing over here in the States, an increased minority percentage, only by, I think, five points or so in the UK, and a decrease in religiousness. So, yeah, I think for atheistic, champagne-schooling, Birkenstock-wearing, Volvo-driving liberals like me, it's a trend in the right direction. So we'll take it. But it, it mirrors what we're seeing, I think, in other Western countries. Dr. Francine Hardaway, I know you have a daughter, you have a family that live in London. How has she found it to assimilate into somewhere like like London? Was London an easy place for her to go and live and to work and to and to raise a family because it is just so international? It was a very easy place for her because it was so international. That's one of the things that she really loves about it. When you think about it, my grandson went to a French school, and now he's going to a British school. And he literally has studied five languages, and he's 14. So he's going to end up being a citizen of the world. And both my daughter and I, we love that. Mike Holden, there we go. Here's the problem. All these internationalist white folks coming to London, diluting our good British stock. Nigel Farage is right, isn't he? We need to put up our borders, stem immigration, because we're going to lose our true British identity. I'm more than happy to be diluted. Thank you very much. One thing did occur to me, actually, that I'm reminded of the answers I put on the census, which is that, and this may have an effect, I hate to bring everything back to Brexit, but I didn't put... English or British on my census, I put European. And a sizable chunk of the UK still are very bitter about Brexit, including yourself, obviously. And I wonder if there was a, a hint of that about it, that people who are not English, i.e. the Scots, the Welsh, the Irish, and those of us that still feel European, didn't put English or British then. So maybe that's down to the things a little bit. Mike Holden, you can read my mind. Brexit is where I do want to go to next. There has most definitely been rising chatter when we look at Britain's economic performance with what Brexit has done to the UK economy. Will it just remain chatter or will we ever get to a situation whereby the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, Sir Keir Starmer, will have the testicular fortitude to call out one of the main reasons why Britain is going to have the longest and deepest recession of all G7 countries? and call out Brexit as the chief culprit for that. 
If you're asking my opinion, I hope so. I, I think it's a long road. I think he's been in a bit of a, a corner for a long time because the politicians in the UK still seem terrified of saying it's a disaster. Although, if you watch the UK news now, an awful lot of the narrative has shifted a long way. These are actually being put on the spot and being told, Brexit has cost us this, Brexit has cost us a huge percentage of export losses, fewer goods going abroad, fewer types of goods going abroad. But I think Keir Starmer is still being, I'm hoping rather than expecting that over time, he will come around to a position of saying, particularly if he gets into power, of saying, we need a closer relationship with Europe. He won't call it rejoining, he won't call it single market. He has to, really, in order to, to get any kind of semblance of rebuilding of the economy, form closer ties with Europe, in my opinion. Mike, that does make a lot of sense to me, that nobody really wants to relitigate in the theatre of public opinion Brexit. Brexit turned British politics something to akin to American politics, with the amount of vitriol, bile and divisiveness that it wrought. And that's regardless of whether you're a, a Remainer or a Lever. I think we can all agree on that. And in effect, there were two referendums. There was the one in 2016. Then there was the 2019 vote, which ultimately was, was a vote just to end the arguments. So it does make sense. There is some logic in Starmer not mentioning Brexit to relitigate old wounds. You have a 20% poll lead. You go into the next election, you have a thumping majority, then you set about reordering the country. And then you say, you know what, the B word can be spoken about. We do know that it's depressed the British economy by anything between three to 5%. We do need to have close regulatory alignment with our largest trading partner. So should my faith in Keir Starmer be renewed then, Mike? You've given me the political reason why maybe that's the reason why he's been so quiet on the matter. I'm more hopeful than expecting. I, I think he he's on thin ice. He's actually on thin ice with many of his own party now. Not his own party, his own voters, I would say, you know, the traditional Labour, who are still divided, that some wanted Brexit to solve their problems and they haven't been solved, so are bitter about that. But many of the rest of us always knew that it was likely to be to detriment to the country and would like it to be reversed, but he feels like you can't say that. These kind of things are still brought up in Parliament at Prime Minister's questions very regularly. The problem he's got now is that the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has got very little ammunition to aim at Keir Starmer. So he brings up Brexit whenever he gets the opportunity to say, well, he voted, he wanted to stay in and we have come out. Although obviously that's starting to look a bit of a sick argument now when it's crystal clear that the amount of damage that's been done by Brexit and continues to be done by Brexit would could have been lessened had we listened to both sides of the, the argument. And I think both sides of the Brexit divider are as guilty as each other over that. Mike Donoghue, I know you're a, a student of, of British politics. Rishi Sunak, how do you think he's done since he's donned uh, the mantle of the big boss, the, the head cheese of the British executive? Well, I mean, to be quite honest, the bar is pretty low, right? He has a pulse and he's in office. So even by that standing, he's outperformed the last, what, three? What, Liz Truss didn't have a pulse? Was she physically dead and, whilst and, being in office? And in office. Sorry, it was a combo. Like, honestly, anybody, at this point, I'm so happy that if they're not bankrupting the nation, 
I'm all for it. Like, that's where we've gotten to, I think, in British politics. He can stand up straight, put a tie on. His hair is combed. He's not invading anyone. Is he great? Too early, I think, for the for the grade to be assigned just yet. But he's not wrecked the boat, which unfortunately is, is a positive now. It's worth pointing out that he has six days to go to, to match Liz Truss's length of service. Gotcha. Mike Donahue, this is going to stay with you just for a little while. Let's also ha- have your considered opinion on Sakia Starmer. I, for one, want him to be a little bit more more robust. But if you have a 20-point opinion poll lead, you don't have to be, do you? All you have to do is just stay stum, be quiet, and wait for the government to trip over itself, as it seems to do every other week. Yeah. And I think I'm still trying to get my head a little bit around some of the polling in the UK. As we found here in the US, national polling versus regional, local, state polling is very, very different, which is why you get a a national outcome in the polls that maybe doesn't match localized results. Again, I'll be honest, by the time it does come around, and you can mark the tape on this, I could be very, very wrong. I get the feeling that the cumulative negative impact of Brexit combined with Labour's inability to really tackle it head on or to address it, they're just sort of hiding from Brexit right now. I think there might be an opportunity for Lib Dems to do better than expected in constituencies where there's some sort of balance or there's a potential balance between Labour and Lib Dem. There may be a general 20% thing, but I would expect to see that diminish significantly overall by both gains by the Tories and the Lib Dems, if the Lib Dems come out with a real strong recuperate the economy plan. Tanya, welcome to the stage, sir. Tanya, I put it to you, sir, that people that look like you and I, we're pushing the good old ethnic Brits to the margins here. We are now the majority in places like Birmingham, my home city, Leicester, Luton, And London is only 46%, no, 46% of Londoners, sorry, self-identify as being non-white. What stresses and strains do you think this might put on British politics? Or should we just celebrate the fact, and we celebrate the fact in the fact that our Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, is also non-white? What says you, sir? Uh, Hello, (laughs) Ryfield. Thank you. Thank you for putting this question that continues to sort of boil boil the top of lots of uh, people in this country. I mean, look... It's it's absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, I was going to be sarcastic at first and, and absolutely agree with you and say, yes, you know, where we're people that look like me and you are pushing everyone else to the fringe. But it's absolutely ridiculous, man. It's just it's just funny at oh, this but, point. But, but, but Tanya, let, let, let's look at this. The last census said that 13% of Britons were non-white. That was 10 years ago. Now it's just under 19%. Enoch Powell was right to worry about our fecundity. Gonna, you know... <laughs> There's going to be no white people left by the end of the century. 3% increase in 10 years, yeah. And there's going to be no white people left by the end of the century. For the people who are still institutionally oppressed and, and who still, you know, find it, find opportunities in, in life very marginal to come by, who still don't are not reflected in, 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 well, you know, Rishi Sunak does reflect a little bit, but to the greatest extent, you know, are not reflected in, in, in the halls of power, who are still asked many times where they come from when they come into contact with, with someone from the royal family, persistently asked where they come from come from in one conversation yeah it's it's ridiculous 
You know what? You, you do bring up an incident w- which happened last week, uh, early last week, where a black woman, head of a charity, I forget her name, went to a party at Buckingham Palace and she was asked by an, an elderly white woman repeatedly, where are you from? And she said, oh, I'm from London, but, uh, but where are you from, etc. Tonya, could we not read into that? The fact that this woman is a member of the aristocracy and members of the aristocracy are always asking their own folk, where are you from? Because are you a Yorkshire, let's say, Holden, or are you a Lancashire Rankin? Could we not read that there was a certain kind of class divide as opposed to putting this down to some level of doubting this woman's Britishness because she wasn't Lily White? I mean, we could we could read that it's the both of them, I think, in my opinion. There is certainly a class divide, and that question is to sort of, you know, get the justification to perpetuate that class divide. A lot of people feel shrink when they get asked that question and a lot of people who who ask that question you know when you ask someone where you're from and they answer you one time you stop there you don't keep digging you don't say but but actually where are you from you know everyone is entitled to to if they have it you know where they, they tell you where they're from and that's it you're not you're not part of their family and so people just it's clear that both both, as, both with class, but also the idea that somebody's black and cannot be British. So so therefore, the persistent question just it's it's a very passive aggressive way of of harassing the lady and harassing people. So I think it's I think it's both of them. And honestly, it's it's difficult because it's unbelievable that people don't understand how some people still defend this stuff and don't understand how harass how much harassive and, and oppressive it is. Simon Gorn, welcome to the stage. We've we've spoken a lot, you and I, in the last two or three weeks about the World Cup, the beautiful game that, that is football. You're also a Leeds United fan. Leeds United, a wonderful football team uh, of old. I remember the days of Billy Bremner. Leeds used to be pretty white, uh, the same colour as, as the kit of Leeds United. Simon Gorn, I say to you, where are you from, Simon? I'm I'm British and I'm a Yorkshireman and that's it depends, you know, if I was being asked which country I come from, I'm British. I don't... Are you I'm British not... before... But Simon, this is interesting. Are you British before you're English? Yes. And then yes, where I... does I Yorkshire come in? I don't... I don't... I don't... No, yes, I am. I wouldn't say I'm English. I'd say I'm British. Yeah. You can have your own sort of local... You can joke about I'm a Yorkshireman, you know. Uh, I'm British. I'm British before I'm European. But I, I was a staunch Remainer. But I don't think that means I have to be European. Yes, I live in Europe. Okay, but that, but I don't trust the label European. Yeah, I'm British. And it's interesting because my wife is half German and half Irish. Brexit. She was upset. Yeah, because she didn't feel that she belonged. And we have a 16-year-old daughter. It makes sense. We've got to get her through myself, either a German or an Irish passport so that she can enjoy the freedoms of, of those nations in terms of travel, going to work, perhaps abroad, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so we had a discussion as parents do. And I said to my wife, we didn't include her in this conversation. What were we thinking? Because my daughter went, well, I'm British. Why do I have to have a passport and be Irish? That made no sense to her. And I realized that there was, in her mind, a connection to her nationality that we had just ignored for the sake of life will be easier if you can go to Europe and have an Irish passport. 
you can't underestimate people's feelings about their nationality. Thank you for that, Simon. There's a bit of a roundup of some of the topics which have been exciting the British in the last week. If you listen to this podcast at home, and I know I've said it before, we've had great download figures recently. If you want to be part of the live recording, download the Clubhouse app to your smartphone. Join the Mid-Atlantic Club and you'll be alerted when we go live with these rooms. And then you can be in the audience and raise your hand and join us. If you are in the audience, how this room works is that generally we have a conversation about UK or US politics and between myself and some of my friends and some pundits and some thinkers on stage. And then we open things up a little bit later. So then you can come up and, and pose a question. So, so that is how Mid-Atlantic runs. But now we're going to move and we're going to go stateside and we're going to try and understand the ramifications of the Democratic prospective senator, Raphael Warnock, what are the ramifications of his victory over Herschel Walker. It is my honour to utter the four most powerful words ever spoken in a democracy. The people have spoken. I often say that a vote is a kind of prayer for the world we desire for ourselves and for our children. Voting is faith put into action. And Georgia, you have been praying with your lips and your legs, with your hands and your feet, your heads and your hearts. You have put in the hard work, and here we are standing together. Start with you, Isaiah D, because you're new to Mid-Atlantic, so welcome again for a second time. What should we read into this very small victory for the Democratic Party in the Georgia runoff race? One thing that we should read into this, which I think actually kind of dovetails with the conversation had about the demographics in the UK and immigration in the UK, is that the right is fundamentally disconnected from the views of regular people in the United States. And it seems like a lot of the specifically anti-immigrant segment of the British electorate is the same. When you look at the data of people who are in the UK and want to lower immigration, they're about a third of the population. Same as what you see here. When you look at the percentage of the population who is really, really into this Trumpism thing, it's a very online segment. It's the same segment who is very much interested in the, the Twitter files, which we can unequivocally say was a total flop because you can tell nobody in Georgia cared at all about that stuff when they were voting, other than people who would have already cared about it, right? The, the people who, who were already riled up about it were, but no one who was a decisive voter cared. I, I, sorry, and, I, I'm not an American, so I can't vote in American elections. If I could vote in American elections, I would vote Democrat all the way down the ticket. I wouldn't even think twice about it. And in some instances, I think the Democratic Party isn't sufficiently left enough for me. But can we completely and utterly write off, let's say, Trump voters? And can we completely and utterly write off large swathes of the Republican Party if this election went to a runoff and the margin of victory was less than 2%? Can we completely write off Trumpism 
and let's say even the Twitter files. This was a close election. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, but remember where it is. Three cycles ago, you would not be talking about Democrats winning statewide election in Georgia, right? Georgia has not over the past 40 years been anything like a swing state. The reason why it's a swing state today is because of the growth in the Atlanta metro area, which has made it more competitive. It being in the South, it is not what should be understood of as, be, as being a deep red state. Southern states in the United States are, they do have typically Republican legislatures and are conservatively controlled, but that should not be confused with them being like super right-wing states. What Southern states in the United States are, are racially polarized states. The white people in the South are Republicans. The black people in the South are Democrats. And most of the states, there are more white people than black people. Therefore, they have Republican electorates. There's not a lot of swing voting there. The, the, the Georgia, Georgia is becoming more diverse, which is what breaks that dynamic in, in Georgia specifically. But it, it's, not a, it's not a place where there's a lot of crossover vote historically. It, it's been this way for a very long time in, in the southern United States to have this sort of polarized electorate, which is why if you want to go and see the states that are really like lopsidedly right wing, you don't go to the south. You go to places like the Dakotas, you go to places like Iowa. Those are places which have very, very high percentages of Republican voters per their electorate. That, that's not what the South is. So the thing that allows Georgia to be a swing state is the diversification of the, the metro area of Atlanta. It is, it is not mostly Republican voters swinging to Democrats. Gotcha, Isaiah. The metropolitan Atlanta area does represent some 60% of the electorate in, in Georgia, full stop. Aaron Fisher, how much of this was down to, number one, the Republicans having a flawed candidate, and how much of this victory, this small but significant victory, is down to the Democrats maybe building a fantastic turnout machine in that state? So it's, it's both. 
I mean, I think in general, people try to look at politics and find some sort of silver bullet answer to why things are the way they are. And it's very rarely the case, right? There's a lot of things that are operating all at once. I mean, Stacey Abrams deserves a lot of credit for initiating what's been a more than a decade long project to register Democrats to vote. There were a lot of people, particularly rural Black people, who weren't engaged in the political process, in fact, had been excluded from it over generations. And she went down those long, dusty roads, or had people go down those long, dusty roads in the middle of nowhere and register people to vote for the first time. And lo and behold, it made a huge difference. And she also helped lead a multiracial multiracial movement to register these people to vote. So you've got Asian Americans who have come together under groups like Asian Americans Advancing Justice. You see, you know, there's a blanking on the name of the Muslim organization right now. There's a whole coalition that's made an enormous difference. And at the same time, Republicans in Georgia have gotten more and more extreme. And what they've ended up doing is creating even more space for that coalition to be successful because there are people who are somewhat moderate in Georgia. And so I think what you've ended up seeing is you, you sort of see both those things operating at once. And, you know, maybe most importantly in this particular cycle, the Republicans decided to nominate someone who barely can string sentences together, except when he's talking about whether werewolves or vampires are better and had absolutely no qualifications whatsoever, other than having been one of University of Georgia's all-time great American football players. You know, he didn't really bring anything to the table. You know, you would ask questions about healthcare, and it was sort of a good answer if he could show that he had an opinion on healthcare, or he sort of understood basically how it worked. And Georgia has changed, and that's not good enough anymore. It's not going to cut it. And a lot of the voter suppression tactics, which continue to be attempted in Georgia, have been overcome by this multiracial coalition of organizers who have helped people overcome the obstacles, the long lines the processes which can be complex and make it easier for them to be able to figure out how to overcome those challenges. And, you know, all credit to them. Also credit to Raphael Warnock, who has found a way to own the stylistic middle. In U.S. politics, there's both, you know, a substantive left and right, um, which Mm -hmm. sort of goes between center left politics and what I would describe as pretty intensely right-wing politics from Republicans. And there's also a stylistic question of, are you a bomb thrower or are you, are you someone who tries to present as moderate? And Warnock is someone who's progressive in his policies and moderate in his style. He's profoundly Christian. He's the pastor at the church that Martin Luther King led all those years ago. He, in his affect, is sort of, he comes in peace, right? He's not someone to lob a grenade at his, at his opposition. And that makes a huge difference. And I think that that's one thing that we've seen is the Republicans have ceded that moderate style to the Democrats. Mm. Marshall, you are a Republican on this stage, and I don't want this room just to descend into groupthink. But I'll ask you the same question, roundabout same question that I asked Aaron. How much of this was down to the Republicans putting up a candidate who at least had issues, shall we say, And how much of this was down to the Democrats just building a great turnout machine? I think it's about a third and a third if I had to take a gander. Bad candidate doesn't make it easy to run an election. Your opposition building a dominant turnout machine doesn't make it good for winning either. 
And if you don't do the work, well, you don't deserve to win. I don't know. I would say I would wonder what this would bode for whether the Trump wing is going to be told by the more moderate wing. All right. You've had several election cycles and you've really screwed the pooch, basically, and time to sit down or whether it's going to lead to more crazy stuff. I think because of the narrow majority in the House, you'll probably have a fairly decent amount of crazy stuff to deal with. So hopefully you can get something done. But I would think it, I think having a dominant turnout machine is important. Can't win if voters don't turn out. Stephen Bader, why didn't more Republicans turn out? Were they just put off by this candidate and just couldn't then force themselves also then to vote Democrat? Well, good afternoon, everyone, at least to the people that are here in the U.S. And hello to the people across the pond. It's great to be here. There's a number of factors that are at play in Georgia. I want to start by saying to any Republicans, fellow Republicans on stage that are disheartened by the, the results last night, to remember that Republicans won every other statewide race in Georgia. And I actually was, while I was uh, waiting my turn in the queue, notice how I said queue, just for you guys. Uh, I fully I appreciate you looking, speaking uh, proper actually, English, Stephen. <laughs> I fully appreciate the use of proper English. Well done. I was taking a look at New York Times because they actually have shift in margin maps, how votes compare to 2020. And particularly with the governor's race, the Republicans won all the other ones, the LG the AG, the SOS, the superintendent, the ag, all that kind of stuff. So Georgia is not out of reach. They voted straight red on everything that's statewide that has to do with running their state. It's just the Senate race. So I wanted, wanted to make sure that that was led with because we all talked about the Senate race, but it should not be taken for granted how well Republicans did in every other statewide race. Yeah, Stacey um, Abrams is not going to be the governor. Exactly. Oh, yeah. And, and so anyway, a few things about this Senate race. One in particular, money isn't everything, but money gets it pretty far. I was just double checking my numbers and total money spent from the campaigns as well as outside expenditures from Herschel compared to Raphael. Raphael had outspent Herschel three to one. I did not actually realize that the, the gap was that big. I was guessing maybe like 1.5. But it's actually approximately, they estimate that it was somewhere in the 140-some million for Raphael and somewhere in the 40-some million for Herschel. So that should also not be ignored. Whenever let's talk about money in politics, the great irony of it is, is that nine times out of 10, they're outspending the Republicans. And nine times out of 10 of those outspending us in those races, it's outspending us significantly. Um, so that's another point, factor that point, I don't want to be ignored. Stephen, Stephen. I've got a few more points. Go ahead. Well, one second, Stephen, because otherwise we're never going get, to get to the end of everybody at least having one uh, bite of the cherry in terms of answering a question. I will come back to that, that amount of money which you've quoted from a British perspective, is totally obscene. We don't spend that on our whole general elections. Our whole, I would say, three or four last general elections, we don't spend that amount of money, let alone just on one race. Andrea. Um, um, what, may, uh, I, may I have 30 more seconds just to answer? Man. I'll tell you what, I'll give you 15, and then I'm going to move on to Andrea. But go for it, Stephen. Oh, I want to make one point, All right, thank you. I'll, I'll make it quick. 
If you actually take a look at the precinct and county data of the Georgia runoff, somehow in the midst of this two-point loss, Republicans actually increased their voter share in the rural counties. Even from a month ago in the official general election, they managed to squeeze a few extra percentages. It's just that in the suburbs, in the cities, we're continuing to go down. One one of the things that Aaron said was absolutely right about the metros, and we can't trade suburban for rural votes. It is possible for us to appeal to both. Thank you, Um, Yeah, I I hear that. Americans are self-sorting as to where they live. It's not just a straight racial issue. It's a class issue. It's an education issue. It's a location issue. And in that regard, you know, things are quite delineated. Piotr, literally 30 seconds, sir, because I do have a question for Andrea. Go for it, Piotr. The point I was going to make was that though that under British law, you're not actually allowed to begin campaigning more than, you know, a certain number of days before the actual election date. Whilst in America, you could... Five weeks. Yeah, Yeah, five or six weeks. Yeah. Yeah, you can begin campaigning the day after the previous election. So, you know, there's just a culture of election cycles in America, which I think is quite, you know, half the team after one year of being in office actually begins looking at how they can rewin the next bit, the midterms or presidential election, which doesn't mean a good thing for, you know, long term, consistent economic, political or policy cycles. So that's that's a problem for the US. Couldn't agree more. And uh, it's a statistic which I've mentioned in this room, sorry, on this podcast many a time, is that uh, the average US politician in Washington spends 50% of their time actually fundraising to run again. That would not fly in Britain, full stop. As Piotr says, our election cycle is incredibly compressed. It's not only just five or six weeks. As soon as the prime minister calls an election, that is then when you can electioneer and a British member of parliament, which is equivalent to a congressman, can only raise something like £40,000 to near. That's it. That is it. It's not to say that we don't have money in British politics and there isn't the odd occasional scandal, but it's nothing like the obscene amount of monies, money which you spent on, on American elections. And I can't do anything other than compare and contrast routinely with the UK and the UK in that regard. Andrea, what can the Democrats actually learn from this? I think Stephen made some excellent points. Georgia, we're saying that Georgia is this now purple state, but actually statewide, the Republicans did have a sweep. Is one of the lessons which the Democrats can learn. It's a case of turnout, turnout politics, you know, knock on doors, etc. But but also to really understand the demographic divide that is America. Andrea, what do you reckon? I agree that this is definitely, you know, there's been constant emphasis on the Democrats in this election cycle and, and before about turning out the vote and upping the grassroots mobilization game. That That said, Georgia is a place where, you know, that game had been upped in large part thanks to Stacey Abrams, as we saw back in the 2020 presidential elections and starting even before that, as Aram had said earlier. I think more once, I apologize, I don't have the data to see, you know, how the vote broke down, but I do think that there was a big turnout of not only Black voters, but for the Democrats, but also young voters. So I think those are two groups, obviously, that deserve quite a bit of attention. And I think that for sure, we've 
heard and talked about before the efficiency or the uh, how impactful the canvassing is the door to door in turning out the vote but in and above beyond that secondly we have heard from our friends on the ground if you can't get down there and turn out the vote by canvassing texting and phone banking is critical and i think that the republicans you know may have been hurt by some of their own in this particular race by the candidate choice but then potentially the issues around mail in voting and of course getting that extra saturday to vote just after thanksgiving i think was probably quite key for the democratic vote thank you andrea Aaron Berger, as a Democrat, where do you think this actually points to Democrats in terms of 2024, in terms of should Biden run? Should we have a fresh slate at the top of the Democratic ticket, etc.? What can we read into the runes of the results, which might point into the future for 2024? One thing that should be, you know, I don't think can be overlooked is the amount of crossover vote that there was, right? It's a, a significant enough amount of voters, we think, were Kemp voters, but then also voted for Evan Warnock, mostly because Walker was a joke. And it's incredible that anybody wanted to take him seriously. The thing that I'm seeing is that, you know, more and more minor demographic shifts can actually have quite a big impact on in these swing states. Of course, certainly we have the slate of Republicans there, but the ones controlling the seats are also the ones that wouldn't go and find the votes when Trump asked them to, you know, during the last, uh, the prior U.S. election for 2020. Let's all remind everyone, Trump is the de facto leader of the Republican Party. Also, last quick reminder, Trump suggested we should terminate the, con the U.S. Constitution. I think that this all augurs quite well for Democrats, because at this point, you know, it's very easy to say, well, Regardless of what you think, at the very least, I support somebody who doesn't think we should terminate the Constitution. And uh, it's really that cut and dry right now. Uh, Odinwe, I'm going to give you the last comment on what we can glean, what we can learn from the Georgia Senate runoff race. And then we'll move on to uh, a matter about uh, the Supreme Court. So thank you very much, Rothfield. I think what people should learn from the from the most races that the Trump and those candidates lost was stop bringing out jokers. I mean, look at Carrie Lake, look at Bo Dutch, look at Doug Mastriano, Dr. Oz, and now Herschel Walker. I mean, look no further than Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell earlier said candidate quality matters. So it was easy for the attack ads the unfavorabilities to be piled against such candidates, which is why they lost. But again, as a moderate center-left Democrat, I want the Republicans to continue bringing out bad candidates so I can we can continue winning and, you know, let them see. I just wanted to speak on something quickly, Rawfield. Do you guys have what Citizens United in the United Kingdom? Then lastly, this issue about mailing, no. mailing, no. mail, mailing no. voting, it's, it's kind of surprising, Rawfield. You know, the Republicans bring up mailing voting as a problem. In Utah, it's universal mailing voting. Nobody complains. You know why? Because of the polarization of the American voting system. They go to the swing states. There are certain states like Maine doesn't have voter ID. You can vote without voter ID. Nobody complains because everybody knows how they are going to vote. Everybody knows that Maine is, is a blue state somehow. Maryland, where I live, people know it's a blue Odin state. Odin way. I like where you're going with all of this, right? But for the sake of my podcast and editing, right, I'm going to ask you just to pause that thought. So what I did want to do before we wrap things up, is actually look at the Supreme Court, a body which is highly polarised, but also highly visible in, in the US in a way that it isn't in Britain. It can't be stressed how different 
the Supreme Court is in Britain. Nobody knows who sits on the Supreme Court in Britain. If they walk down the street and knock you over the head with a with an iron bar, you wouldn't know who the who the hell they are. It is not their judgments are not seen as political. People left or right see them as taken in good judicial wake, shall we say. Steve Crone, you did some work at the Supreme Court when you were a young, fresh Steve Crone. There was a really interesting case which you brought before them this week, which I've heard you opine upon on Clubhouse. Take it away, Steve Crone. So this is a case involving a Colorado state law that bars businesses from discriminating against certain groups, including gay people. And a case was brought by a website designer who said, although she wasn't currently designing wedding websites, that she wanted to start doing that. And she wanted to announce on her website that she would not offer that service for same-sex weddings. The case is unusual for several reasons, but one of them is the the procedural posture of the case. She wasn't actually creating these websites. She had not actually turned away a same-sex couple, but rather she was approached by a legal activist organization that, that wants to forward these, these positions. And she approached the California Commission that enforces this law for effectively an advisory opinion that she could go ahead and do that without violating the law. And that case has made itself, made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. The oral arguments were yesterday, and her essential argument is a First Amendment argument, that by designing a website for a same-sex wedding, I would be forced to make speech that I don't want to make. And so that would violate my First Amendment rights. So in Britain, we don't have a First Amendment, a Second Amendment, etc. Our constitution has just kind of evolved. Where does, for our British listeners here, where does protecting minorities start and end and someone's free speech start and end in the United States? Well, that's not an answer, a question that can be answered quickly, but that is the key question in this case. So anti-discrimination laws in the United States have been around for a long, long time. To some extent, they are rooted directly in the Constitution. But we have a variety of anti-discrimination laws covering, you know, of course, the workplace, education, anywhere that gets federal funding. But the one that's most relevant here is so-called public accommodations. But we have laws that essentially say businesses that hold themselves out as open to the public to provide goods and services cannot discriminate by refusing to serve certain types of customers who are in a legally protected class. Those, those laws originally applied to things like hotels, trains, etc. But that concept has been expanded to apply to, you know, most businesses that, you know, are sort of open to the public and, you know, hold themselves out as being able to provide a good or a service to all comers, they're not able to say, except, you know, if you're black or if you're Catholic or if you're gay. And so that's the, the, the civil rights law. On the other side, we do have a First Amendment, which basically says that the government can't force folks to engage in speech that they don't want to or forbid them, 
from engaging in speech that they do want to, except in limited circumstances. And so in this case, the critical question really is, is designing the website the kind of speech that is protected by the First Amendment and that gives rise to this conflict? Or is it more akin to, I don't know, cleaning the suit or the dress of one of the people participating in the wedding? or providing the catering services, or baking a cake? Is designing a website really expression protected by the First Amendment at all, I think is, is the key question in the case. And where to draw that line between protected speech and selling a good or a service in a way that doesn't constitute speech or expressive conduct? That's the really key question in the case. And that last question from me, do we have any idea when a decision will be made? Well, the standard answer you get whenever you ask any, anyone that is sometime between now and June. The court releases its opinions on a rolling basis, but the highest profile and most difficult decisions often wind up being released toward the end of the term. So it could be as soon as, I would say, March. And it could be as late as a major. There you go. That's been an interesting week in US and UK politics. We've gone back to our old format where we do try and cram in some element of US looking uh, stuff and, and UK stuff. We've, for the last, I think, six months or so, uh, done shows which have embraced either one side of the Atlantic or, or the other. We will try and uh, do these kind of double header shows going on in the future. But if something, um, really does demand that we look at one side Atlantic over the other in depth. We will do that also. Don't forget, you can send me an email where I'm royfield at gmail.com. If you'd like to send me an email and berate me and tell me about my left-leaning bias and how I didn't have enough balance on the stage, I will read that email out. Also, I've got to thank all the people who have been writing reviews. I have been asking you to do this. And at the start of the show, the, the, the latest three or four people have written reviews in the US and the UK for us on Apple iTunes. You will have heard your name. Quite simply, if you want to get a shout out on the podcast, quite simply, write the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts and they will give you that shout out. It's as simple as that. It's a really important way for us to increase our listenership for the podcast. Don't forget, Left to Centre Politics is right thinking politics, but we don't demonise our right-leaning brothers and sisters. We entreat with them, we talk with them, we break bread with them, and we try and win them over with the strength of our arguments. Some people say this is dangerous liberal talk, but I, I think it doesn't matter how left your politics is, if we can't fundamentally talk to people that don't agree with us, what is the point of democracy? What you have left is fire. So on that note, I'd like to thank everybody who's been part of the show today. If you're in the audience, why don't you click the little greenhouse over in the top left and become a member of the Mid-Atlantic Club. If you like a kind of intellectual debate, if you like political debate, if you do like to hear perspectives on the news, that's what Mid-Atlantic is all about. We have two or three shows coming up just before Christmas with some eminent thinkers. We're going to do a show on the Iran uprising. It's much to my shame that we haven't done one in the last three months, but I have got together two great academics who absolutely do know what they speak when it comes to Iranian politics. We're going to try and get that show out before before Christmas. We're just trying to schedule things in, in people's diaries. So we do have a lot of content before Christmas. 
Again, if you're in the audience listening to this, thank you for bearing with us. My name is Royfield Brown. I've been speaking to some some friends, some pundits, some some new friends about US and UK politics. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.